1: Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, episode 147, Top 10 Free Player Games. We'd like to thank our Patreon backer, Colin, for helping us bring you an ad-free episode.
0: You're listening to a proud member of the Dice Tower Network, dedicated to bringing podcasters together for the greater good of gaming. It's sort of like Voltron but with better lip-syncing. Find out more at DicetowerNetwork.com. Welcome
1: to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris.
0: And this is Anthony.
1: Hey, Anthony, we got another episode and it seems that we may possibly be one person missing, right? We're talking about three-player games. It's just you and me? Yeah, we do have an
0: empty chair over here. We have an empty chair. Um, Can't play any of these games right now. So
1: (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So hopefully our listeners are listening, and hopefully one of these games that we talk about in a little bit will be such a good game that next time we see you at the convention, we can actually get that game at the table together with you.
0: Yeah, I think between the two of us, we own all of these.
1: I think so. And it's funny you should mention that too because Colin, one of our newest Patreon backers, actually backed the level that he will be playing games with us at the
0: upcoming conventions. Yeah, so if you love three-player games, let us know. And if you don't, there's lots of other games too, so let (laughs) us know. (laughs) There you go.
1: So, Anthony, other than three-player games, anything that's exciting coming up for you these days? Um...
0: Star Wars.
1: What? What is the Star Wars you speak
0: of? Uh, get off. You're fired. <laughs> uh, guys, come on. It's Star Wars week. Now, we, we don't have a Star Wars themed episode for you this week. In fact, we might have the opposite <laughs> based on what's on the top ten list today. Sure. But I am going to share a little bit of Star Wars with you a little bit later, my acquisition disorder. But not, all of that pales because on Friday, first thing in the morning, my wife and I are going to see episode eight And that's really my entire agenda for the next, like, eight days. So (laughs) don't see any spoilers online once the reviews start coming out. And go see Star Wars once, twice, maybe three times.
1: So we're not going to do an episode specifically for Star Wars? Star Wars reaction videos? Star Wars retakes? Star Wars right after the show? Star Wars commentary? None of that?
0: Uh, Maybe in a couple weeks after we've both seen it. Okay. You know, we can uh, do the the same thing as last time, where I'm like, "This was amazing," and you're like, oh, "Yeah." So. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I liked it the first time I saw it when it was a new hope, but nonetheless.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I two years in, I'm I'm gravitating towards your position, having seen the, the movie a few times now. But I'm hoping episode eight is unique enough.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's fine. It, they're fine. They're fine movies. We, we love them. We're big Star Wars fans. I'm really looking forward to the upcoming movie. I did see the last one, I think it was like 6 a.m. in the morning. So I was total uber fanboy there for the movie and really did enjoy it. So really looking forward to the next one. And hopefully we'll get to see new games and components from this new movie at the table pretty soon.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, we didn't have... Anything super surprising or new hit? Uh, I think a couple years ago we had like a an X Wing reboot with Force Awakens stuff, but not this year. So maybe soon.
1: Yeah. And there seems to be a lot of cool stuff coming out with the movie. So I'm really excited to see something new actually at the table. And I think the other thing too is the new Avengers trailer looked amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so, man, I mean, who knows? I mean, you know, back when I was a kid, all these comic books, even Star Wars, which was still huge was still in some ways kind of niche so now that you know avengers and superhero movies and sci-fi movies have become like mainstream maybe one day this niche hobby that we have will also become mainstream and maybe we'll see more board game movies or just board gaming like hey that new board game's coming out everyone's going to be online to play that it's going to be at these big you know massive gaming rooms might be the newest thing who knows
0: yeah i mean it's it's not improbable, because we have games with big, immersive, detailed IPs now. We have the whole Terranoth universe, we have Scythe, we have the Arkham files, we have all this stuff that could be turned into some really cool media, mm-hmm. interactive media, outside of just you know the cardboard that we're used to now. I think we're that far away from that happening, but we'll see. I mean, it took a long time for comic books to finally find their stride, and some companies are still trying to find their stride, so... Sure. Well, maybe board games will be the new Lego.
1: Remember when Lego was just Legos, and now Lego's like these massive play sets that go along with the movies, and sometimes they come out before the movies? Yeah. So all that stuff to look forward to on this upcoming holiday season. But let's get right into the episode, and I think Anthony wants
0: to talk about what people have been talking about on Facebook. So, Anthony, what's the question of the week? All right. So I asked everybody, with Twilight Imperium 4 released very recently and Eclipse 2nd Edition coming next year, what other massive game do you think is due for a major design refresh? So Chris mentioned the World of Warcraft coffin box from Fantasy Flight. And he said he doesn't really care if it's the same IP or something different. He just really likes the system. So he could slap another IP on it and he still have his interest. I don't think that's that far beyond the realm of possibility. They did it with StarCraft uh, when they released the Forbidden Stars which is also out of print now, but at the time, it was a new version of the StarCraft board game. Uh, Jerry mentions Dune, which has been re-implemented as Rex, but that game has been kind of sitting stagnant for a long time now in the TI uh, universe. So kind of refreshing that would be interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, we had on Twitter, Major Havoc mentioned Hero Quest, So y- admitting that there are a ton of dungeon crawlers out this day, but there this one is a classic and everybody's so interested in it and people have tried to get it refreshed out and there's just been issues with IPs and funding and all this other stuff. So I think there's a lot of really good classic games. People tend to gravitate towards the big massive coffin box adventure games, uh, which makes sense because they have so many bits in them. I don't have like those long held, you know, nostalgia for adventure games. I didn't play that stuff when I was a kid so much. Like I think like, When I asked this question, I was legitimately interested to see what other people had in in mind. Because for me, it's slightly more modern stuff. Like, I would love to see Terraforming Mars in a beautiful, fantastic, modern production with real artwork and not just weird pasted on, you know, stock photography. There's a lot of games like that. A lot of Euros that I'd like to see kind of deluxified uh, to steal Tasty Minstrels terminology. But yeah, it's pretty cool. There's a lot of good stuff out there. What about you?
1: Well, I I guess like you said, some of the easy stuff would be most of the Euro games are some form or the other, either trading the Mediterranean or some level of agriculture. But we've kind of moved away from a lot of that. So I'd like to see something that's more modern using a lot of those Euro mechanics. You don't see that in a lot of games. So I'd like to see some of the big designers actually get involved in that. But I guess at least if I'm looking forward to seeing an IP kind of updated or a game kind of updated... I think I'm actually getting my blessing a little bit on, I guess, on multiple levels. I've been a fan of Munchkin, which is kind of a very light game. It's And I know a lot of people just treat it as a throwaway game. But it's really an excellent IP, great artwork. And the news recently was that they partnered with Simon So Simon's going to do an Arcadia Quest version of Munchkin. And Steve Jackson Games is also doing a Magic version version of munchkin with their ccg so that ip is kind of getting retooled which is great because there's a lot of ips and board games as we mentioned earlier that would be great if it actually had a solid heavy game behind it but you know taking something classic and kind of updating it more of a modern so let's say instead of caverna let's move it up and update it in this modern era and let's look at some i don't know renewable energy or something so instead of like mining out a cave Maybe you're building these renewable energy plants or something that's more modern or maybe you are creating new ways to travel to Mars. There's a lot of stuff that's going out there that's a lot more modern and I'd like to see Eurogames get more involved in that. All right, so if you want to jump in with that discussion as well, there's always a question of the day on Facebook and Twitter. So you can reach out to us on there, our website, BoardGamersAnonymous.com. We have our Patreon account if you want to jump on with us and talk to us either in our Slack group or if you want to join us at a convention at a game, that's also available. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, and on YouTube. A lot of places to find us and we want to hear from you so we can bring you more episodes that are worth to your liking. So Anthony, with all of that done, let's finally get into our acquisition disorder.
0: So what do you have for us this week? And we're back to Star Wars. That didn't take long. (laughs) No. (laughs) I almost wish I'd played a Star Wars game this week because I could have it like boom, boom, boom. No. So the Star Wars Imperial Assault Legends of the Alliance app. The Fantasy Flight teased this for us about 17 months ago at Gen Con. We were there. We were in the room for the flight report. And they teased it. We tweeted it out. People were flipping out. It was amazing. I was very excited. And then about 11 months of radio silence. And everybody's like, it's vaporware. It's never going to happen. They can't get the license from Disney. Ah. And then at Gen Con this year, the only update we got was it's still happening, period. And then another three months of silence. And then we got, it's vaporware. It's never going to happen. And then suddenly on November 20th, which was literally just like two weeks ago, they said, it is going to happen. Here's the preview. It's coming very soon. Two weeks later, they released it. This came out, I think, last Thursday. Mm-hmm. And I downloaded it immediately and set it up. And I had to pull out all my old stuff, which has been sitting on the shelf for about two years now, growing because I have like a subscription to get this stuff from my local store. But I haven't actually played it and went through the tutorial. So this isn't a review because all I've done is a tutorial. And this is something I've been waiting for for literally three years to play legitimately without the one versus many because I just can't get a group together for that and just the whole experience is fantastic so I have not done the Descent app I have not played that fully through so I can't compare the two and a lot of people say this was a little bit better which I would expect because it's a the game is a little bit more refined than Descent my approach has always been having played at Descent now is one is Star Wars and one is fantasy so Pick the one you like. They're not sure. that different. But I, you know, I really like Star Wars and I have all the stuff. So I'm very, very excited about it. But the basic idea is you play a certain number of characters. If you play by yourself, you play two characters. They each get two activations per round. The game runs the Imperial aside for you. It tells you where they come in. It tells you what what they can do. It gives you like a list of different actions they can take. And you just run through the priority schedule based on um, what they can do. And you know, maybe there might be eight options there, and you just go through until you've picked two of them and that's their turn. Works really, really seamlessly, and it's a lot more integrated than most typical AIs because it is an app, so it's dynamic. Again, I've just gone through the tutorial though, so I don't really know how this plays out in the campaign, but I had so much fun playing like the two or three hours of tutorial and just <laughs> moving this stuff around, and the game's like, go over here and go over here and pick this up, and now you have new weapons. It It keeps track of all your upgrades, so you get, you know, new weapons or you can purchase stuff. So you gather credits throughout the game that you can then spend to collect new cards that then go into your uh, loadouts for future missions within the same campaign. It's fantastic, just the way it's built. Now, again, not a review, haven't played it in full, but very, very, very excited to do so. And we will probably be doing so as soon as I am away from work uh, in about... <laughs> 10 11 days here uh before the holiday break so this is a uh, top of my playlist at the moment
1: nice how would it compare to the descent app
0: i mean it's roughly the same idea like the way yeah. they built it out it's just the ai is a little more intense like it has more options it does more stuff there's more things you kind of have to keep in your head you're probably gonna be referencing the re- the rules reference book a little bit more often sure. than you would in descent because there's just more keywords a little more going on okay uh, and then the, the game itself, the Imperial Assault game, has just a little bit more stuff. So there's a lot of different things that will trigger off of each other within okay. the game that maybe you wouldn't experience in Descent as much. It has okay. kind of the same mechanisms, but not as frequently or not as intricately. I haven't played Descent a ton. I haven't played Imperial Assault a ton either. But from what I have played, Imperial Assault just feels a little more strategic in terms of planning out your missions, sure. um, whereas Descent is a little more along the lines of a classic dungeon crawl, which is pretty tactical. Uh I honestly though like the differences for me. Some people say that it's oh it's night and day, and I'm like, I don't I don't see it. I really think if if you love Star Wars, of course get Imperial Assault. If you love high fantasy, of course get Descent. If you love both, I don't know, flip a coin. <laughs> there <laughs> no. you go. Or buy both. I happen, to ha- I happen to have both because Chris got me uh, Descent as as a, a Christmas present a couple years ago or last year I think. So I get the benefit of having both games. And I can try both out. But if you don't have either and you're picking one. Just pick the theme you like best at this sure. point.
1: does the Star Wars One have any Star Wars content, like other than what comes in the game? Does it have music or voices or something from the from the actual movies?
0: No, no. Okay. i was I was impressed. Uh, I thought it was like as it's loading, as the the logo shows up on the screen, I was waiting for the the swell of the music. Yes, there is no music. Ah, there are some sound effects. and I'm not even hundred percent sure they are original sound effects. I think. Whatever they had to do to get around the licensing issues, they did. Okay. But it does pull away for a little bit from the uh, um, the theme and ambiance of the game. So take that for what you will. Um, EA and Disney and Lucasfilm and everybody seems to be happy and nobody's suing anybody. So, <laughs> um, And I get to play Imperial Assault uh, solo. So I'm happy. Nice. But yeah, the music would be nice.
1: Okay. All right. I want to talk about a game that was demoed at Essen. Didn't really get a lot of... I guess airplay about this coming out. This is a Bruna Cathala game along with Florian Surix. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name. It's called Imaginarium, and this is coming out in 2018. There isn't a lot of information out here yet about this game, but I promise you, if you take a look at the images on board game geek about this, I think you're gonna be blown away. First off, the theme is really interesting. It's kind of a steampunk fantasy world in which you are one of these engineers that are creating these machines to kind of build and direct dreams. So it has this very sci-fi fantasy look to it. Amazing artwork, great graphic design, beautiful components. Each of the characters that you play as actually has a really beautiful mini bust. So, you start the game, that's your character, that's going to be kind of your worker placement marker that you're going to place on this main board that's going to allow you to select machines to add to your own tableau, and then as the game goes on, you'll be picking more and more parts to actually use kind of a set collection mechanic to build up your machine to be more and more powerful. Now, there are many different resources in this game, but... The main resource is kind of like this unobtainium. It's charcoalium. So it's this imaginary charcoal that's going to kind of run your machine. And basically it's going to score you victory points. And what we're looking at here is while this game has beautiful game theming all over it, it's a solid Euro game. So as I said, tableau building, set collection, running a machine, trading resources to build other resources in order to complete kind of like contracts. And then there's this interesting little steampunk dial that allows you to do two actions, but you can't do the same two actions each time. So it's there's a little bit of programming there, kind of like Aquasphere a little bit, where you kind of spin this dial. It's not a spinner, but it's like a little clockwork clock where you have to pick the two actions and the hands are kind of set. So basically you're going to take two actions that are next to each other. And then, and the game kind of wraps up with trying to meet these final goals. So the game looks beautiful, wonderful pedigree, designers here, great artwork, and something that's pretty unique. And it seems to be at least a medium-weight Euro, and I think this is going to make a big splash in 2018. You're going to see this game everywhere. And that's Imaginarium from Brutacathala. All right, so that's our acquisitions disorders for this week. Now two are at the table. So, Anthony, I guess, unfortunately, you don't have a Star Wars game this week. What do you have at the table?
0: Um, kind of an Indiana Jones game. All so right. close, right? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, this is called This Belongs in a Museum. And this is a game that we kind of tracked down at PAX from developer... Uh, rather Dashing Games, which I had not heard of until I played their game Element, yes.
1: um,
0: which is a, well, we'll review it in a little bit, but it's basically a, a player power variant version of Go, which is fantastic. But mm-hmm. This Belongs in Museum is a tile lane game. So the goal of the game is you are one of four archaeologists, um, and they each kind of fit a different stereotype of archaeologists. We have your Indiana Jones character, you have your... Indiana Jones' dad character, you have your Salam character, and you have the, of course, the female archaeologist that shows up in all of Indiana Jones' films. And then what you're trying to do is lay out different tiles for different dig sites, and it's really, like, thematically speaking, everything kind of fits, I guess. There's a tomb in the middle. There's different base camps you're going to put out. There's mummies that you're going to move around the board, and then there's different artifacts that you're trying to get give you points but in the end of the day it's a tile laying game and you're just trying to connect all the same colored tiles to your base camp for maximizing points. so on your turn you're going to place a tile from your hand you'll have four tiles in your hand you pick one you place it Uh, resolve the action on the tile that you just played there are three possible actions one is to rotate any one tile and they say any unlocked tile which is basically any tile that doesn't have a mummy or an archaeologist on it swap so you can swap any two unlock tiles in play or replace. So you can swap a tile that's in the tableau with one that's in your hand. And for any of these actions, you can also, instead of doing that, move the mummy. So there are one mummy for every player color. You can move any of them. And if your mummy happens to be on someone else's area, at the end of the game, you're going to score points for that area and they are not. So. There'll be a lot of jostling and jockeying for position as you move mummies around and try to take advantage of kind of how the layouts are done and, you know, steal points from people. Um, the different dig sites, you are trying to get the artifacts that are going to show up on the different tiles. You're going to start the game with a certain number of artifact targets in front of you. And you're as you find them, as you move your archaeologists to them. On the tableau, as it unfolds, you will flip those over, and they're worth a certain amount of points at the end of the game. I think they're worth three. If they're part of your dig site, they're worth even more points. So you're just trying to get through and find them. A couple other interesting things. There are mountains and seas in the different terrain tiles, um, separate from the temples that match your color. If you use these to connect the different dig sites, they're considered to make them adjacent. So the goal being that all the same colored dig sites that are adjacent to your base camp Are worth points. So if you can connect them via uh, mountains or through seas, then those are also worth points. You can also use airports that are also ways to kind of extend adjacency. And then, of course, you're moving your archaeologists around to pick up the various artifacts that you find. So the game is kind of, I would say, push and pull, but you're not going to move the mummies too often, maybe 30% of the time. So every You know, every three actions you take, you might move a mummy. It's really just making sure it's not in a bad place for you towards the end of the game. It's kind of the most important thing. The game really just comes down to the draw of the cards or the tiles. You know, if you draw consistently tiles that don't have your temples on them and there are only the other players temples, all you're doing is trying to find a place to put them. It doesn't help the other person and allows you to move a mummy. And that's not as much fun as actually building out your own tableau. So Let's say you're the blue player. Every card you have in your hand is green, red, or yellow. Eh, not as much fun, right? Also, if you don't play with the four full-floor players, you're always going to have a color that doesn't mean anything, which is kind of helpful. You can stick it in there, kind of block things, but it feels superfluous to the game. So in the end, every time I've played this, everybody got roughly the same score. Occasionally, one person would do really bad because they didn't realize how to connect everything, but it's really basic tiling that relies a little bit on luck and kind of at the end of the game, the last two or three turns as that draw deck runs empty. Can you move the mummy away from you if you can't? If you just pull poorly and don't get an action that stinks and you just lose because someone steals, you know, eight, nine, ten points from you. Um, I think one game we were all within four, another game. We were all within six and one game. One person won by 25. So that's not fun, right? It's it's a fine game. I like the mechanics of it. I think it works well when it works. But when it doesn't work, it's frustrating. And it, it doesn't really fulfill the full vision of what the game's supposed to be. Also, counting up at the end what the actual scores are is unnecessarily difficult. So you have to kind of keep track of how things are connected. It's very possible to miss things. We frequently were recounting our scores two or three times. I really, really wanted to like this game because I love tile laying games. I like the theme. I like the archaeology thing. I like the, you know, kind of eighties Indiana Jones style. Um, I mean, it's, it's forties archaeology, but kind of that eighties approach to that, the pulp um, approach to it. I like all of that. I just don't think the game really came together very well in the end. So it's a dodge for me, but it's close. It's not horrible. I don't think I'd run away screaming if I saw it at the table, but I certainly wouldn't pick it up and, I probably won't bring it back to the table again uh, at this point.
1: Okay, so a new game that was recently released at Essen and was a recent big Kickstarter is The Clans of Caledonia. Now, you've probably seen this game, as I said, from Kickstarter. It actually got a lot of buzz, and it has a pretty decent pedigree as far as the different mechanics that come into play here that the designer took from a lot of other popular Euro games. So if you like Terra Mystica, if you like Agricola, La Havre, if you like the new Gaia project that's out there, some elements of Marco Polo, you're probably going to know and probably going to like a lot about what the Clans of Caledonia does. Now, basically, this game is kind of like a slimmed down greatest hits of Euro games. You're going to get your own player board in this game, and basically, you're going to set up All the possible different resources and factories and farm animals and workers that will come into play during the game. Now, like Terra Mystica, as the game goes on and you use these pieces as placements on the board, you are going to uncover opportunities to gain resources or process basic resources into more advanced resources. So... There's your Terra Mystica part. In addition to that, also going to be ways to fulfill contracts. Once again, like Marco Polo, by utilizing the resources that you get, you're going to be able to fulfill those contracts. And those contracts are going to come into, I would say, probably the probably the central part of this game where you're going to score the most victory points. There is also a way to score just general victory points as the game goes on. And in addition to that, those contracts that you pick up are not only going to give you straight victory points for their hops, but you're also going to score victory points based upon three different market goods that are going to come into play. So there's going to be sugarcane, there's going to be cotton, and there's going to be tobacco, and there are markets. So as people complete contracts, those resources will move up the board. Now This is a little tricky because... The higher and further they move along the board, the less they're worth. So in the end of the game, you want to have the most contracts of a resource that are actually have not been processed or have not been utilized as much. Because you'll score five points and in the second place, one of those resources scores four. And then the one that the contracts have been utilized often and been completed the most often will be three points. So it's a little counterintuitive as you go, but it does kind of make sense once you you get playing the game. Although you can't predict what the market's going to be at the end of the game, you're basically going to do your best to just see what you can actually complete instead of where is the market going in the future because there's really no way to determine that. The game plays in five rounds and actually does play pretty quick. But at the start of the game, you're basically going to get a clan. This clan is going to have a special ability. Think Marco Polo again where it's going to give you one of these kind of rule breaker kind of abilities either to placement of your people or to affect the market of the goods because as you sell and buy goods, those things change or it's going to utilize the goods in various different ways. So once you get one of those and you do your initial placement of your workers, whether they are a woodsman in the woods or a miner in the mountains, think Terra Mystica here, then you can start building around where your workers were initially placed. Now, it does, as I said, implement a Gaia project, one of the new games from SNE came out, where you can build a little further away from your initial workers based upon your kind of merchant tracks. So there's going to be rivers, there's going to be lakes, and this will allow you to actually spread out a little bit. And that's important because one of the end goals are going to be, once again, this Terra Mystica mechanic where... Depending on how you build your cities out and across different waters, it's going to score you victory points. And then, as I said earlier, completing contracts scores you victory points. And then going back to Marco Polo, person with the most contracts will score the most victory points. So the game has a lot of little kind of rules and a little specialties. There are special bonuses on the corners. But basically, as the game goes on... You're going to take one of eight different actions. You're going to trade goods, which are going to move the market. You're going to obtain contracts that you're going to try to fulfill. You are going to expand your possible presence on the board. And if you are next to somebody else, then you'll be able to buy from the factory at a cheaper price. Once again, think Terra Mystica. You'll be able to ship, which will allow you to build at a greater distance. You'll be able to upgrade your technology, which will score you more money in the game. Hire a merchant that will lay- allow you to utilize the market a lot more, fulfill contracts, and basically pass to get more money. Now, what's really interesting about this game is, as I said earlier, it has kind of like that farming agricola element to it where you are producing goods and those turn those goods to other goods. But the transformation, the processing of those goods into processed goods really only happens at the end of the round. Otherwise, you have to buy your goods from a market. So fulfilling the contracts doesn't really happen as fast and fun as they do in Marco Polo. And the the Terra Mystica element of just buying resources when you're next to someone isn't as satisfying because typically... The contracts that you're getting, and you can only hold one at a time unless you have a special player power, it's really going to focus you to just that. So if you build next to somebody and you just don't need that resource that round, you're going to drop your person there and not really utilize that discount in the game. But as the game goes on, you will be completing contracts, and surprisingly enough, contracts cost money. And each round, there is a special scoring phase, which something is going to score you additional victory points in the game. So those are random, so it might work to your benefit or not, depending on what you're building that round. And then basically, as I said, the game wraps up in five rounds. Now, as I said, this is kind of a light version of the greatest hits for Euro games. I liked pretty much everything about this, but at the same time, there was nothing extraordinary about this game. You know, if I really wanted to play a farming agriculture game, probably rather play Agricola or Caverna. If I wanted to play player powers and completed contracts, I'd probably play Marco Polo. If I wanted to play the Terra Mystica, I'm gonna play the Terra Mystica or the Gaia project here. The game is a little shrunk down because it's a Kickstarter version and I don't begrudge that at all. I think eventually this game will probably get a second release where it'll be kind of a little more robust in the size and in the components. But otherwise, it's a good game. It just doesn't do anything extraordinary. It doesn't do anything so super. The sum of its parts are not bigger than anything else. Clans of Caledonia, solid game. Definitely worth the play. If you have not played this game and you sit at the table, sit down and play. I think you will enjoy this game. It reminds me of so many other games. It's a nice, solid Euro, I would say medium weight game. Yeah, I had a
0: chance to play this recently too. It's, uh, it's funny because when I played it, I was like, this is really good. I really oh. like it. And then I sat down to think about it and this was completely separate from you. We hadn't talked about this at all. I think yeah. we played it around the same time separately. And at a certain point I was like, oh, this really just takes the mechanics from these three games, three games that are in my personal top 10. Sure. Why would I play this when I could play any of those? Which is tough because it's, You want a game to do something new, something interesting, iterate on something, expand it, grow it, do something new or different. Like if I liked Terra Mystica, but wanted it to be farming, I could see pulling in this instead. Uh, If I liked, you know, Agricola Caverna and I wanted it to be shorter, I could see pulling this in instead. But I don't necessarily want those things. So. It's a difficult one to recommend. I still think it's well worth a play. And if you've never played those other three games, this is great. It's a great game. And I think it's a little more accessible even. But if you've played those other three games and love them, it's those three. Well, it's a bunch of other stuff, too. But it's Euros mashed together. That's what it is. It's, it's the now hits uh, of Euro gaming from the last five years, which is kind of cool that it exists and it works. And it got kickstarted and people like it. Uh, but it's difficult to say go buy it. Definitely play it if someone has it, but don't go buy it. There you go. All right, so now on to our feature review. So for our feature
1: review, we're going to take probably the oddest number of player counts to the table and try to find the best player count. Now, there are many, many great games for two-player games. They're actually games just built to be two-player games. And there are an enormous number of great games for four-player games. I mean, pretty much every Euro is a must four-player, you know, table count. But three players is an odd number. What happens if you do have three players at the table and you want to play a great three-player game? Well, we got a top ten for you this week. And these games, some of them play right out of the box with three and some of them play better. Best at three. All right, so let me start off with our number 10, Robinson Crusoe Adventures on the Cursed Isle. Now, this is probably one of the co op games that probably kind of went underneath the radar a lot because it doesn't really fit as far as a kind of like traditional co op game because it does implement so many different interesting mechanics as far as rolling dice is concerned to kind of like press your luck to be able to do something in a probably more efficient manner but it's going to get a little more dangerous utilizing a special deck where you get hit with something you place it back into the deck and then oh boy it's going to explode and it's gonna be really bad for you why this game plays best at three is because if you're going to play this kind of massively strategic game you do need three minds to be able to manage the different elements that you need to bring together to survive on this island. It's a great game and definitely something that's worth your time. That's Robinson Crusoe, Adventures
0: on the Cursed Isle. All right, at number nine, we have Trois. Trois is a game by Sebastian Dujardin, Xavier which who I believe developed Carson City, and Elaine Orban. And it is just recently reprinted, so I feel confident putting it here. as uh, something you can actually pick up. It's basically you are in the medieval France and you are working on the city of Champagne in France. So you're rolling dice. The dice allow you to take different actions and you will recruit dice based on where you place your workers in different areas of the city. The real major mechanic of this game, though, is that you can purchase dice from other people. So when you roll your dice, you place them in the city center based on where your um, player icon is and you can take dice from other people and use them by paying for them. Now, with a full player count, the game can be kind of tight. People, enough people buy your dice, that's a little rough at times. You might not have enough dice left over, and if you don't have enough money, then you're kind of limited on what actions you can take. It'd be a little rough on you. Uh, Like any good Euro game, if you get down to two players, the rules change a little bit. There's a lot of neutrality in there. It doesn't really work as much. With three players, it's just right. You have the neutral dice out there as well, but you also don't have more than two people who could possibly buy your dice from you. You get good balance, and you can get a lot of actions into the religious, military, and civil areas of the city. I like this game a lot. It's just mean enough to work, just random enough to work, but not so much so that kind of breaks the Euro mold, uh, does something different and unique, and I'm glad it's back in print. Okay, so for our number eight game, I have Race for the Galaxy. Now, you probably know Race for the Galaxy
1: because it's pretty much done so many different things for, I guess, sci-fi Euro games. Basically, what you're doing on your turn is you are going to be picking an action. Now, this action card allows you to do a number of different things. You can explore, you can settle, you can produce... It basically allows you kind of like to do everything that a 4X game does in a little little tiny kind of card game. Once you play that action, what's really interesting here is that based upon what everybody else does, there's going to be a lot of following that goes on in this game. So you you could be able to utilize someone else's action to be able to do something as far as creating your own galaxy to produce, to settle, to use your war machine to take over other worlds. It plays best at three because if you're going to play a two-player version of this, play Jump Drive. If you're going to play a four-player version of this, play Road for the Galaxy. But if you're going to play three players and you want a great 4X civilization sci-fi card game, there's nothing better than Race for the Galaxy.
0: All right. So at number seven, I have uh, Lahav. This is Uwe Rosenberg's game of managing ports and... A lot of people think, oh, it's Agricola, it's C, but it's not really quite Agricola. It has a lot of the similar elements, but there are so many more different elements to it. And really, it evolves around these different buildings that you're going to purchase or activate by spending money to uh, the right to activate them from other players' tableaus. So the game itself can get a little unwieldy at higher player counts everybody's going to be building out their own tableau of buildings and generating their own resources. And yet at any point in time, someone else can go into your tableau and give you money to activate your building. So when you get up to the four and five player counts, you have cards all around the table, lots of things generating, very, very tight. And usually there's one or two players who just get stuck somehow and can't catch up. It does not work very well. It's particularly tough at five. Four is still a little rough. Three is, in my opinion, the best way to play this game. And that's important because this is one of my favorite games, period, as a Euro. And I want to make sure we're all having a good time. So on the box, it says 30 minutes per player. I think 45 is a little more realistic. So at three players, you're looking a little over two hours. More than that, you're looking at three to four hours too long. And the game really works smoothly and works in in a way that it doesn't quite pull off at a higher player count. So if you're going to play Lahav, keep it small. Keep it to that tight three-player version. Two players, again, the rules change a little bit, so not really worth it, but three is just about perfect.
1: All right, so our number six is Through the Ages. I've already talked about this and reviewed it, and it's an outstanding game, especially the new version. And what I really enjoy best about this game is all the different things you can do as far as interaction with other civilizations surrounding you. Now, at two players, you don't get to use the pact cards that allow you to make packs with other players, to trade resources, to kind of stave off all those different military actions, and really allows a level of interaction that you don't see in a lot of 4X Civilization games. Now, at the larger play count, you're in for a very long game, and I think that's the one knock about this game is that it does take a very long time to play. But at three players, it's really the sweet spot. It gives you the total game without kind of being overbearing with the long play time. So if you're looking for a great game, that's, that's Civilization, three players, through the ages.
0: All righty. At number five, I have Ticket to Ride Nordic Countries. Now, Ticket to Ride has dozens of versions out at this point. I think it has five full expansions and six or seven different standalone core sets you can buy. The Nordic countries however is nearly in the top 100 and for good reason. It plays only 2 to 3 players and definitely plays best at 3. And, and the idea of the game is that you are working only in the Nordic countries, uh, Scandinavia. So you have the tunnels that you get in Europe, and ticket to ride Europe, and then you have ferries which were later introduced into several other games and expansions. The locomotives, you can now pick up two when you draft, but you can only use them for ferries, tunnels or the special nine length route. The game is much, much tighter. There are less routes. It's much tighter in terms of who can go where. You don't have all those routes with two options for all the different people to go through. So there are several different situations in which you're going to get blocked. So it's very aggressive in that way. So if you're looking for a three-player Ticket to Ride that is aggressive and tight and doesn't pull any punches and has a little bit of a unique twist to the core games of Ticket to Ride with the U.S. map and Ticket to Ride Europe, it is Nordic countries. Check this one out. Also, interestingly enough, the U.K. and Pennsylvania map is compatible with this as an expansion, so it is not just a complete standalone.
1: Okay, so for our number four is Star Trek Attack Wing. Now, Anthony and I have talked over many, many years about this flight path system that's been utilized in a number of different games. Why Star Trek Attack Wing stands out more than most is, first off, it's a great three-player game. Especially if you are first getting into miniatures or that flight path system and you just want to buy the base system and you want to play three players. It comes with enough stuff for three players. So there's the Federation, the Klingons, and the Romulans. But even if you're not a Star Trek fan, it's just three different ships with three different crews that you can play with. And it's fun. And once again, it's a three-player game right out of the box. The flight pad system is very simple to use. Basically, you're going to pick a direction on your dial. You're going to place out this kind of track marker that's going to indicate where you're going to go. And then once you're there, if you're in range, you roll some dice, see if you got hits. The other person gets to roll some defensive dice, see if they got some dodges. And basically, you're going to utilize your cards to kind of modify the dice in particular ways to take out your opponent. Really fun game, especially at three players, Star Trek Attack Wing.
0: All right, at number three, we have Churchill. This is a game from GMT Games and designer Mike Mark Herman, uh, released just a couple of years ago in 2015. And it is about the struggle between Stalin, Churchill, and Roosevelt during the 10 conferences that they held in, from between 1943 and 1945 during World War II. So at first glance, it looks like a war game. There's a map of the different fronts and of your units, and you're trying to control those places. But this is 100% a political game. The core of the game is these 10 conferences. There'll be different issues that you nominate and vote up and try to take control of. You'll be playing cards that represent different historical figures to move different things on these tracks. And part of the game is, yes, moving different units and taking control of different clandestine networks and moving um, fleets around on this map. But really, the core of the game is managing these three iconic individuals from World War II and trying to come out ahead. And the interesting thing about the game is you can't just destroy your opponents. If you're too far ahead, then you put yourself in a bad position. Uh, You don't want to just demean everybody to the point where they take adverse action. So you want to keep the score close and yet still ahead. If you do blow out the score, then it's usually likely that the second place player and sometimes even the third place player will win the game. So it's it's a very careful push and pull. The game technically plays one to three players, but when you play with less than three, you will use the automated spreadsheet workflows in the uh, rule book to manage the other two heads of state, which is not very fun unless you really like war games. I have played this solo a couple times. I even tried to play it two players and we didn't get very far. Three players is 100% the only way to play this game. But if you do and you have two other people who like war games but want something that's not a war game, that's more of a political influence driven game, Churchill is a fantastic experience. Very hard to get to the table, but a fantastic experience.
1: Okay, for our number two game, it's actually another Star Trek game, Star Trek Ascendancy. Now, Anthony and I debated whether to keep two Star Trek games on this list. But actually, this is another game that plays with three players right out of the box. So once again, this is a 4X game. You are discovering, you are building, you are destroying you are producing to build up your fleet, to expand throughout the universe, to gain all these ascendancy points that you need to win the game, and there's a number of different ways to do it. What's so unique and interesting about the game is all the races play different. So if you're Federation, you want to go for scientific discoveries. If you're the Klingons, you want to go for military victories, and basically the Romulans do what Romulans do, which is a little bit of everything and a little spine along the way. So... Basically, as you expand throughout the universe, you're you're kind of putting down these little pathways to enter new planets. And then those planets open up new additional planets to explore. Each planet has a different combination of resources and dangers along the way. This game really kind of offers that kind of mega gaming convention experience in just one single box. And now with the new expansions that came out, you can play a number of different races or play in a number of different ways. But either way, Star Trek Ascendancy is an epic game for any player, whether you're a Star Trek fan or not.
0: All right. And number one on our list is Three Kingdoms Redo or Redux, depending on how you pronounce that. This is a not a new game. This actually a game that's been out for about three years. It was originally only available in the US at least on the Board Game Geek store, but Capstone Games recently republished this game in spring of 2017. And it is a fantastic game that replicates the Three Kingdoms period in China with the kind of the ongoing battle between the Wei, Wu, and Shu clans and blocks of uh, that period of time. So the game is full of tons of different mechanisms. You will be bidding on different availabilities of actions. Each of the character classes and the different blocks you're working with is asymmetrical to start based on where they were historically. You'll be managing all the different aspects of actually running your government and your forces. Um, there's car drafting and hand management and partnerships, and you can work together and you can mess with each other. There's a marketplace and farming and recruiting army units and producing weapons. And I could go on and on and on. You can read all the dozens of different mechanisms that are in this game on the BGG page. But the bottom line is the game really captures that Romance of the Three Kingdoms feel of fiction and popular culture that permeates a lot of different products in the last few years that's been really popular around this theme. And it does it in a very creative, clever way. The game only plays three players. There's no way to play it with less than three or more than three. But if you can get three people together who are interested in this theme and can commit to the three, four, five hour playtime, it is a fantastic, admittedly heavy Euro game that's worth playing.
1: All right. So there is our top 10 three player games. So next time you're looking to get a game with three players, look towards these games. I got to tell you, one of the most challenging thing about board games tends to be when you get that great game and it says, oh, it plays one to six players. And you're like, uh, oh, really? It plays all those play, player counts? Because I got three players. And if you're ever sitting at the table and someone says, what should we play? Look at your player count. And if it turns out three players, offer or suggest one of these three-player games because games do have a sweet spot. And it really does open up gaming to a whole new level when you got three players at the table. All right, until next time, this is Chris.
0: Hey, and this is Anthony.
1: And a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, we saved you the third player seat at our table.
0: Woo! Star Wars Week!